Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Matthew 5. Um, we're going to read in a minute from verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, just a greeting I would give to those who are watching via live stream. Uh, we appreciate your presence with us uh, digitally. It's been uh, many months since we've been able to meet as a church under normal conditions. And uh, boy, I, it'll be great. I hope it's soon. I don't think it will be too soon, but it'll be great when we can all gather together in uh, our church and sing normally and worship together. And, uh, but I appreciate you joining us. Thankful to uh, Aaron Krause for the work that he's done to make this uh, live stream possible. So uh, you're missed. Just want you to know that. Now, Matthew 5, 17 uh, through 20. Follow along as I read from the scriptures. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore... Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You might have missed it. It was on Wednesday of this week, but Wednesday, July 15th was tax day this year. Your taxes were due on Wednesday. The date was moved from April 15th to July 15th because of the pandemic. You might have missed it. You might have missed it because you already filed, and you might have missed it because there were no news stories on the 11 o'clock news of some reporter standing outside a post office waiting for the procrastinators to come and drop off their taxes at the last minute. Because tax day was July 15th, there's this unusual situation this year where tax season and vacation season overlap, and I think that's just terrible. Think with me for a minute about the differences between preparing and paying your taxes and the difference between planning and funding your vacation. One of them you do, it's a great burden and a chore, isn't it? You, you gather the paperwork you gather the forms or you go on to TurboTax and you start to think to yourself, why does the government need all this money anyway? The other, though, fills you with joy and anticipation. You, you can, while you're planning, you can smell the pine trees or you can feel the ocean air. You're ready. When you prepare your taxes, you look at the rule book specifically and carefully. You want to find every exception, every guideline you possibly can. You're probably not that particular about the rules when you book your vacation. You, uh, you, you know, that campground that you're going to probably has a noise ordinance, but you don't really care. You're just thinking about your view. Uh, when you pay your taxes, you are as tight as possible. You're not going to send the government one dollar more than they deserve, which is even less than you're giving them already. But you're a little bit more lavish, aren't you, with your vacation spending? Uh, when my in-laws uh, come to visit, we haven't done this in a while, but when they would come to visit for a number of years, it was a tradition. Someone would suggest after dinner that we go out for ice cream the third night that week. And my father-in-law would say, 
ah, we're on vacation, who cares, right? No one says, ah, it's just taxes, who cares? No one says that. Now, I want you to think, take those differences between paying your taxes and funding your vacation, and I want you to lay them over this paragraph that we just read, and we'll see here a similar contrast, the contrast between, though, what I want to call thin obedience, or to even use the text here, the word of the text, thin righteousness, as opposed to thick obedience or thick righteousness. Thin righteousness is the righteousness that was exemplified by the most spiritual people of Jesus' day, namely the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Thick righteousness, in contrast, is what Jesus calls his followers to. There are different ways to try to please God. One of them is exacting and scrupulous and narrow and unpleasant and very appealing to righteous, uh, religious people. The other way to try to live a life that pleases God is broad, it's generous, it's deep, it's not as clear-cut, it's really hard, and because of that it's less appealing, but it's more satisfying. Thin righteousness versus thick righteousness. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We're moving through Matthew slowly. And uh, remember that this is the first of five great sermons in the book of Matthew. There's five collections of teaching. The book of Matthew is pretty easy to to walk through. So the first four chapters are Introduction to Jesus. Then there's a, a series, five sermons. And interspersed between those sermons are miracle stories. And then at the end, there's a story of his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. That's how Matthew is laid out. Here's the first sermon, and his theme is the blessed life or the happy spiritual life. How do you live a blessed, happy life? We believe that Jesus has all authority. He is worthy of all of our allegiance. And uh, because of that, we... Uh, Our allegiance manifests itself to him in thick righteousness. Thick righteousness that is different than the life of the most righteous people that Jesus' audience knew, namely the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I know there are some of you in the room, but some of you actually prefer regular Oreos over double stuff Oreos. I don't know why you would do that. I don't know why you would go to the store and think to yourself that buying regular Oreos is an acceptable choice. You know that when you bring those sad cookies home, your family is turning them behind your back into double stuff Oreos. They are pulling them apart and putting them back together and they have left over this sad pile of those hard brown cookies. I don't know what they're doing with them. They're in the couch cushions. They're feeding them to the dog. I'm not sure. But why they're doing to an Oreo what an Oreo is meant to be, double stuff. Why, why you have found in Jesus forgiveness and life, you who have recognized him as your savior, why would you settle for something other than the thickness of the righteousness that he calls us to? 
Let me see if I can explain that a little bit more, and I want to tell you how we're going to proceed this morning. Uh, D.A. Carson says that Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is one of the most difficult paragraphs in all of the New Testament. And one of the reasons that it's difficult is because it has far-reaching implications for how you read the rest of the Bible. I, I want to unfold it in three headings. First, we're going to talk about Jesus and the Old Testament. And then second, we're going to talk about the thin righteousness of the Pharisees. And then third, we're going to talk about the thick righteousness of Jesus. That's the plan. Let's start by talking about Jesus and the Old Testament. He begins in verse 17 by saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, why would he say that he was said that? Because apparently there are some people who thought that. There were some people in Jesus' audience and indeed some of Matthew's first readers who thought that there was a conflict between Jesus and the Old Testament. And I think the reason they thought that is because Jesus, when he began his ministry, did not endorse the, the righteousness that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were demonstrating. Everybody thought that those Pharisees were the ones who, who were following God aright, and Jesus didn't have much interest. He, didn't, he didn't, didn't amplify their message. It didn't cohere. His message didn't match theirs. Uh, here's a couple of examples. So look at Mark 2, 15 and 16. So this happened before the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, look what it says here. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't Jesus get it? Doesn't Jesus get that if you want to follow God, you don't eat with people like that? Doesn't he know about the rules, about being clean and unclean? And if you eat dinner with unclean people, you're going to be unclean. Doesn't Jesus know about the rules? Here's another example from Matthew 2, uh, Mark 2 also. Um, this has to do with the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his, and his, his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus, don't you get it? Don't you know about the rules that Moses gave us? Uh, well, the rules that we're keeping in order to do what Moses told us to do. Don't you know about them? Don't you regard, don't you have respect for the law? And Jesus says, oh, yes, I do. In fact, I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. That word fulfill is a key word in the book of Matthew. It means to bring to completion or to embody in full. Uh, Matthew uses this word a lot at the beginning in Matthew 1 through 4. Remember when Jesus fulfills the prophecies? Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah or what, what, whichever prophet he was quoting. To fulfill. Jesus is the living embodiment of the Old Testament. He is, he is them. He's the Old Testament in human form, as it were. Here he is. He's come to fulfill them, to live them out, to show them. When I was in eighth grade, uh, Billy Graham came and did a crusade in Rochester, New York. And uh, my dad and I went every night to hear Billy Graham preach. And uh, we saw George Beverly Shea sing. Some of you have heard George Beverly Shea sing. George Beverly Shea, of course, was Billy Graham's soloist. He had a beautiful uh, baritone voice, and he would sing at all of the crusades. 
One night, George Beverly Shea got up to sing, and he sang, I'd rather have Jesus than him. I'd sung that hymn dozens of times. I knew some of the lyrics. I'd heard it before. But there's something different about hearing George Beverly Shea sing it because George Beverly Shea wrote that song. So, And he'd been singing it for 50 years. So when he sang it, it just sounded differently. He owned that song. It was his song. And Jesus is saying to the, the, his audience here, I, the Old Testament is my song, and no one can sing it like I can. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He has not come to uh, uh, abolish it, but he doesn't leave it unchanged either. We read it differently because he has come to fulfill it. We could talk about this for a long time. There are passages, entire books in the New Testament that teach us how to read the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is, in light of him being central to the law and the prophets. We could talk about this for a long time. And in fact, for the weeks that are to come, we're going to go through some of those commands in the Old Testament because Jesus leads us through them. And we're going to talk about how we read them with him at the center of them. Him having being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. How do we read the command about murder and adultery and oaths and revenge and love? How do we read all those commands in light of who he is? We could talk about that for a long time. We're going to spend a few weeks on it uh, when we come back to the Sermon on the Mount. But for now, let's press on to verse 18 and see what else Jesus says about the Old Testament. What's interesting about verse 18 is not just what Jesus says, but how he says it because he begins, truly, I tell you. Now, that's just a couple of words. They don't land that hard in our minds, but they would have hit his audience differently than they hit us. And the reason being, in Jesus' day, religious teachers would never say anything on the basis of their own authority. They would never say, I think, or in my opinion, or I say to you. You would always quote, this is a sign of humility, this is a sign of your learning. You would always quote somebody else, as Rabbi this person says, or as Moses said, or as David said. You would always quote, you would never have the audacity to say, I say to you. But Jesus does it here, and he's going to do it again. I say to you. That kind of matches the claim he made in verse 17, where he talks about, I have come. I have come. It's kind of audacious, too. I have come. Imagine here you're sitting at lunch uh, after church, and uh, one of your children turns to you and says, I have come into this family to bring you happiness. You would say, you didn't have anything to do with you coming into this family. We brought you into this family. And if you keep talking like this, we'll take you out of this family, right? But this is what the EMT says. If you fall, you break your hip and you fall. The EMT comes to rescue you and says, I have come to help you. Jesus says, I have come. I tell you. Then he says, 
Truly, I tell you, very orthodox statement about the scriptures, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And the book of Matthew is going to reveal to us that Jesus is the one through whom everything is accomplished. This is astounding. No one in history has ever spoken like this. Jesus is on a completely different level. No wonder at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he's done, people say, no one talks like this man. Who is this? Who is this that speaks like this? Who says that he has come and that he has the authority to speak and he's the one who's gonna, not a, he's the living embodiment of God's word and he's the one who's gonna accomplish everything that they say. Who talks like that? And how can it be that someone who would talk like this how, how can his story end in the Gospel of Matthew the way it does? How, how can it end with him dying the way he does? Being arrested the way he is? How, how can that be? That should be one of the questions that you ask as you read the Gospel of Matthew. How can he talk like this? How can he do what he does and he end up dying the way he did? Now, verse 19 is almost as audacious, actually, as the rest of when he's talking about the law. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands. Now, you have to think about the command. Which command is he talking about? These commands. Is it the commands of the law and the prophets? Is he pointing back? Or is it the commands that he's going to give that are going to come out of his mouth in the verses to come? I think he's talking about what he's going to say. Watch what happens if that's true. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands uh, and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Your eternal destiny, Jesus says, will be based on your response to my words. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's quite the claim that you're making here. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clear about the blessed life that he is calling his followers to do. It is based in him, and it involves this direct connection between the rest of God's word and who he is and what he will accomplish. It's an astounding claim as we begin and as we think about these ways to live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, with that as the foundation, we can move on and think, secondly here, about the thin righteousness of the Pharisees, the thin righteousness of the Pharisees. I think verse 20 would be very discouraging to Jesus' audience. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem is, the Pharisees are the most spiritual people these uh, listeners knew. They have no shot at surpassing them. The problem is, though, that Jesus is going to tell them that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are pursuing the wrong kind of righteousness. That's the problem. They're pursuing the wrong kind of righteousness. Our tendency as human beings is to see God's commands as a hindrance, a problem, an interference, Something that gets in the way of you wanting to do what you want to do and meeting your needs. 
Let's think about it. Some of you on Sunday afternoon, it's family time in particular. So let's say you're going to go for a hike. So you go hiking. It's like going to be 96 degrees today. But you're out walking and enjoying the, or suffering under the assault of the sun. And you come to a creek, a beautiful creek. And you think, I know what to do with the creek on a hot summer afternoon. And just before you jump in, you see this obnoxious sign that says, no swimming. What madman posted that sign? Here you are, you're going to enjoy yourself, and there's this sign, you can't go. Why is this person ruining your life? You know, I bet, I bet if that person who posted that sign knew you, they'd be okay with you swimming in their creek. And, and if they knew your needs, I mean, if they knew you were there and it was so hot, I mean, they would let you. And if they knew how nice a person you are and how responsible you are and how you'll take care of the creek, surely they would let you do it. But right now, that sign, that thoughtless sign is in your way. Human beings have been coming to God's commands for a long time and saying, this is in my way. Doesn't God know what I need? You know, doesn't God know who I am? His commands, they interfere. They inter- I, I would be happier if, if all these rules weren't there. Now, what do you do What do you do if you have enough of a fear of God that you don't want to completely ignore him, but his rules are kind of a pain too? What do you do? I have some strategies for you. Pursue thin righteousness where you have all of the external signs so that if anybody's looking, they'll think highly of you, but none of the internal realities. Here's what thin righteousness looks like. It's good for Pharisees and good for fundamental Baptists, too. Three things. Thin righteousness reduces devotion to rules. It reduces devotion to rules. It makes a relationship with God all about keeping your rules, keeping the rules. In uh, Matthew 23, I think, we'll come to it in time, uh, Jesus uh, criticizes the, the Pharisees because they have tithed all of their spices but they have forgotten to show compassion to people. So picture it. You're coming to church on Sunday morning. You go to your cupboard. You open it up. You get down the McCormick's bottle of bay leaves. You open it and you count them. And for every 10, you pick up one because you got to go tithe it. And then you put the other nine back in the bottle, put it in the cupboard. There you go. We're good. But you take your salt and you weigh it very carefully. And you take one-tenth of all those uh, all that salt, and you bring it in because you've got to tithe it. That's, that's the rules. And on the way, you run over somebody in your neighborhood. All the rules, none of the compassion. Now, God's commands and compassion are not contradictory, but if you have reduced your relationship to, with God to rules, that's thin righteousness. Here's another uh, practice of thin righteousness, looking for loopholes looking for loopholes. Matthew 5 speaks to this later in this chapter. Uh, if, you may, if you swear, for example, they would oaths. If you swear by the temple, you don't have to keep your word, but if you swear by the gold of the temple, you do. Loopholes, loopholes. I'm going to find loopholes. Jesus says, just keep your word. 
Make a promise, keep it. That's what he said. Loopholes. Third, tolerates hypocrisy. Thin righteousness tolerates hypocrisy. Chapter 7, Jesus comes along and he says to the Pharisees, don't you dare, don't you dare try to take a piece of sawdust out of someone's eye if you've got a two-by-four in your own. This is what religious people do. They evade, they reduce, they make excuses. This is the temptation. Uh, Louis C.K. said something that might apply here. Louis C.K. is a comedian. He's had his own troubles. Uh, But listen to what he said. I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a a thing I want to do, I just do what I want to do. Thin righteousness. Does thin righteousness manifest itself in your life? I thought of a way that thin righteousness, the temptation toward thin righteousness manifests itself in my life. It has to do with my entertainment, what I watch. Uh, I have reduced it down to rules because I only watch the, the good stuff, the stuff with the good rating, you know, that follows all the rules. That's very strict, so you can only say these bad words, and if you say these bad words, well, it gets a rating that I just can't, I, I follow the rules. Uh, I know sometimes um, on the, the television shows that I watch, I know that sometimes they're serial fornicators. Uh, now, they don't show that, you know, because they start kissing and a few buttons get unbuttoned, and then the next morning they wake up in bed, they don't show the rest of the stuff because it's all the good rating stuff. That's what I watch, but... They're still serial fornicators. But you know, you know, I mean, it's not going to affect me. It's not going to change. I know that that's not right. What am I supposed to do? Just watch old VHS movies of uh, Little House on the Prairie? I mean, come on, right? Reduce, evade, make excuses. This verse bothers me. Psalm 15, 1. Who... Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Who who can have fellowship with you, God? And then there's this list in the rest of the psalm. The person who, and it lists all these qualities. Look at verse 4. Who may have fellowship with God? The person who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. Despises the vile person. What does it look like in your life to despise a vile person? How? We have to figure this out because Jesus tells us to love our enemies, but also to despise a vile person in Psalm 15. We have to figure that out. What does that mean? Well, we have to press on this a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that despising a vile person means that I'm not free to laugh at their jokes on their comedy special. That's where thin righteousness and the temptation toward it manifests itself in my life. How about in your life? Do you think of ways that this temptation to reduce and evade and make excuses that manifests itself in your life? It'll be in different ways than in my life and in the life of those around you, perhaps. Maybe we can understand this more and think about this more if we move on to thick righteousness and think about the thick righteousness that Jesus calls us to. 
Thick righteousness begins by seeing Jesus not as an impediment to a satisfying life, but the way to life. That Jesus is the exit sign in the burning building. He's the GPS when you're lost. His way is food and not poison, light and not darkness. He's honey, not overcooked broccoli that you have to eat because vegetables. Right? Seeing Jesus this way. And he's at the center of these commands. We take up these commands because Jesus himself is at the center of them and because he has given us to them. We embrace thick righteousness because of him. All the way down in my thoughts and my motives and my desires, I want thick, thick righteousness. Because they come from Jesus, who he is. He's our savior. He's our rescuer. He's the Lord. So I want thick righteousness. No carve-outs, no loopholes, no reductions. Who's equal to this task? Verse 20 is this two-sided verse. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I've got no chance no chance. How can anybody enter the kingdom of heaven if you have to have that much righteousness? Well, Paul enters the picture, of course, and tells us that this righteousness is a gift. This righteousness has to be a gift. Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now apart from the law and the, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, and Jesus is at the center of the law and the prophets. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, Matthew 5.20 is a two-sided verse. It's an indictment and it's a calling. It's an indictment in the fact that I recognize I will never of myself have enough righteousness to please God. It must be received as a gift. And the gift giver of that righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he lived the life that I should have died. And he died the death I deserve to die for me. And he rose again. And he gives life and forgiveness and righteousness to anyone who believes. Once you receive that gift, then verse 20 becomes this calling. Oh, Lord Jesus, we have found in you life and forgiveness. Your wish is my command. Give me whatever command you would give, you who have come to rescue me, and I, I will follow you in it. Thick righteousness, all the way down, as much as I can, that's what I want, because they come from you, Savior, Jesus, King, Lord. My sister lives in North Carolina. She is very seriously discipling her children to be fans of the Buffalo Bills. And uh, so they talk about the Bills all the time. They cheer for the Bills. They own Bills gear. My nephew wants to be dressed up as Josh Allen for Halloween this year. Josh Allen is the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, and everybody in Buffalo, this is an exciting time to live in Buffalo because they think Josh Allen is going to have a great year. So my nephew wants to be Josh Allen. Can you imagine? He's going to dress up as a Buffalo Bill in North Carolina. If he were in Philadelphia, they'd gut him. But he'll be okay, I think, in North Carolina. Right? 
So sometimes he, he puts uh, Josh Allen's jersey on, and my sister will say, we'll call him Josh Allen. Hey, Josh Allen. Uh, you love Josh Allen. You like to throw like Josh Allen, and you run like Josh Allen, and you lead a team like Josh Allen because Josh Allen is your hero. If Jesus is your Savior, join him in walking with thick righteousness. Pray like Jesus. Live like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Think like Jesus. That's what he calls us to. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus, this one who has all authority and is worthy of all of our allegiance. Lord, we confess to you that we are prone to think of your commands as infringements, as things that ruin us and take away our satisfaction and get in the way of what we think we need. We confess that to you, Lord, that that is often how we view your commands. I pray that you would help us to see them through the lens of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Having trusted in him for life and forgiveness, now would you teach us to trust in him deeply, truly, and wholly uh, for uh, how to live a blessed, satisfying, happy life. Cause us to be dissatisfied, Lord, with the thin righteousness that is evasive and hypocritical and narrow and censorious. Teach us instead the broad thickness, deep thickness of the righteousness that Jesus has called us to. And help us as a congregation to encourage one another to that end. We pray, asking these things in the name of our Lord and Savior and coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen.